one of the things that I came across this week, and I want to use it as we call uh, ourselves into the presence of God this morning, is uh, the words of Psalm 119, the first two verses, and, and it talks about being blessed. And I think we have a lot of different ideas about what being blessed looks like and how we get there, but this is what the psalmist says. You are blessed when you stay on course, walking steadily on the road revealed by God. Now, he doesn't give us a lot of other parameters about how to be blessed. He says it really one way. You're blessed when you stay on course, walking steadily on the road revealed by God. You're blessed when you follow his direction, doing your best to find him. Don't go off on your own, but walk straight on the road God has set. The world around us pulls us in a lot of different directions, and there are voices on every side calling uh, uh, to get our attention, tempting us to follow them. But the psalmist reminds us that we will experience God's blessing when we stay on course, when we're walking steadily on the road revealed by God, and doing our best to follow God's direction. Let's bow in a moment of prayer this morning, shall we? God, we've come to worship you today straight uh, to your house and with your people uh, to hear your words, to learn of your ways. This morning, give us strength for this journey. Thank you for all of those folks who are gathered here today, faithful companions on this journey. Help us uh, as we map our way together this morning, following the route that Jesus showed us, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Today we've come to the last, uh, or the next to the last message in this teaching series called Something Greater, and we're in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, uh, today in chapter 6, and we're going to be sharing a great story this morning about about spiritual sight. The prophet Elisha, in our story today, finds himself in a crisis. The king of Syria has gone to war with Israel, and Elisha and his friends are surrounded and his servants are filled with fear. Have you ever had one of those kind of days trying to pursue God's purposes in your life and you find yourself just filled with fear, filled with uncertainty? One of the things that we have to come to grips with in the spiritual life is that as Christ followers, we're always going to find ourselves surrounded by enemies. But even when that happens, God does not abandon us. Uh, We are never alone. If we remain faithful, God will rescue us. It's amazing what God promises us. He, He reminded Elisha and he reminds us that we are never alone in this life and we do not need to be afraid because those who are with us are more than those who are conspiring against us. The Apostle John said it this way. He said, the one who is uh, in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who lives in us is greater than all the enemies around us. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes today so that we, do, we may see you, uh, that we may glimpse something of your perspective on life. And even that in those moments when we feel surrounded, feel uh, surrounded by great opposition, by problems, help us to know that, you, uh, that we are empowered by you. Your glory and power are all around us and within us, and help us to step out today in your mighty strength and do what you're calling us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In my younger years, I was blessed to have really good eyesight. Didn't need glasses, didn't need contacts, 20-20 vision. 
But about the time I got close to 40, I started not being able to read the words on the page as clearly as I used to. Everything was getting a little blurry and the doctor was very sympathetic. She said, it happens to most people about this time in your life. Eye muscles don't work like they used to. But as much as um, we think about sight and how much we appreciate that, without sight there is so much in life that we miss. We might not see the beauty of the fall colors like we get to experience here in the state of Michigan. Uh, we might not uh, feel the thrill of looking into the eyes of someone we love, uh, the joy that comes from looking at the delight on a child's face. Uh, but as much as we value physical sight, spiritual sight is 10,000 times more important than physical sight. Spiritual sight is how we perceive God. Without spiritual sight, we miss out on some of the best things in the universe. One of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden was that sin left us spiritually blind. And maybe even worse, unaware that we're blind. We're still thinking that we can see. We still think that we're just fine. The miracle of the prophet Elisha we're going to look at today addresses the issue of spiritual blindness. And as we've talked about in this series, Elisha, the, who was called the greater prophet, is a foreshadowing of Jesus, the greatest prophet of all. Elisha's ministry was remarkable. He was able to do things that no prophet before him had ever done. And Jesus would come along years later and do even greater things. Elisha's name in Hebrew means God saves. His ministry was to demonstrate the saving power of God. So I invite you to read this story of Elisha today, uh, healing uh, a blindness through the lens of what Jesus accomplished for us. Listen to the words of 2 Kings chapter 6, and we begin with verse 8. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately, Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, do not go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he would, not, so that he would be on the alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded... Which of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It's not us, my lord, the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Go and find where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. <clears throat> and the report came back, <clears throat> Elisha is at Dothan. So one night the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops and horses and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than there are on theirs. And then Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. <clears throat> As the Aramean army advanced toward him, 
Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. <clears throat> so the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Now let me pause there for a moment. Many believe that this blindness was more of a delusion than it was <clears throat> physical blindness. The army couldn't see. Uh, they couldn't determine where they were. They couldn't uh, figure out what was going on. <clears throat> then Elisha went out and told them, you have come the wrong way. This is this isn't the right city. Follow me, and I'll take you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. Now, Samaria was about 10 or 12 miles from Dothan, and even marching at a brisk clip, this would have taken about three hours, which makes me wonder what kind of small talk was going on between this uh, Syrian commander and Elisha during those three hours. And I kind of imagine a conversation something like this. So, Elisha, what is it that you do? Well, I used to run a farm, but I haven't had time for that lately. So where are you taking us, uh, Elisha? Where are you leading us? <clears throat> oh, to a nice place. You know, it's just down around the bend. F friendly people there. You'll love it. it, I, it I imagine this was an awkward three hours. Samaria, by the way, was at this time the capital of Israel, where the king of Israel lived with all of his army. So look back to the text in verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? In other words, you typically would not just kill prisoners of war, would you? And these are not even your prisoners, they're God's prisoners. So he says, give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and sent them home to their master. And I love this next line. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. Now the plot of this story revolves around two sets of blind people. One, a believer, and the other, a group of non-believers. And what both needed most was their eyes to be opened. First, I want to talk about the blindness of a believer, of those who, of us who believe in Jesus Christ. Elisha's servant was terrified when he saw the size of the army coming against him, but he was blind to the presence of the God who was fighting for him and the size of God's army. Essentially, he doubted two things. He doubted the steadfastness of God's love and the strength of God's power. He thought that God had abandoned them. We're surrounded, we're abandoned, there's no hope. And yet, you see, the essence of sin for a believer or a non-believer is the lack of faith in God's goodness. The reason we reject God's ways and pursue our own path in life is because we don't think that God is infinitely trustworthy, that he's infinitely good. We don't trust him. The reason we're worried, the reason we fear is because we don't believe the promises of God that he's good, that he's fighting for us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he's working all things for our good. The reformer Martin Luther once said that every sin begins with an evil heart of unbelief. And religious people, like this servant, like us, often doubt God's goodness 
and love as much as unbelievers do. Unbelievers show their unbelief by walking away from God. Believers show it by being constantly worried, constantly fearful that are about our lives and about our future. Why? Because we really don't trust God. It's as simple as that. As religious people, we tend to show our unbelief in God's goodness by thinking that we have to perform at a certain level before God will love us and accept us and bless us. We see God as an adversary who has to be won over through our good works. God, I've done this much. Won't you bless me now? Martin Luther said that our good works are a defense against the goodness of God. Now think about the irony in that statement. Our good works are a defense against the goodness of God declared in God's word because we really don't believe in the word grace. We don't understand grace. So we try to earn God's favor by our good works. So God, in answer to Elisha's prayer, opens the eyes of this servant and he sees the armies of God surrounding the murderous horde of Syrians. And this huge Syrian army is nothing compared to the millions and millions and millions of angels that God has surrounding them. Sometimes when we're afraid, what we need is just a clearer vision. Here's what the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians. He said, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep is God's love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. And then we will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. The Apostle Paul does something in this verse that is very uncharacteristic of him. He loses his words. He says the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge and even my ability to describe it. And so he prays that we might sense it and we might feel it with our hearts. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul explained that even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God has set his love upon us. And Paul says we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now think about that statement for a moment. If you are a child of God, there has never, ever been a time when God did not know about you, when God did not love you. Before you were born, God made a way to save you. Before you ever sinned, God made a way to redeem you. God set his affection on you before you were ever created, and he has moved in all the events of your life to bring you to himself. Why? Because he loves you. David says in Psalm 103, God's unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above. We've all been outside on a starry, clear night and seen the beautiful stars. But think about that. Think about how light travels at 186,282.2 miles per second. And if you, in the time that you snap your fingers, light travels around the globe about six times. In one minute, light travels 11 million miles. In about eight minutes, light goes from the sun to our planet. So when you feel that sunbeam on your face, it was on the surface of the sun eight minutes ago. In one day, light travels 160 billion miles. In one year, about five trillion miles. That seems incomprehensible to us because it's virtually unimaginable to our minds. 
But that is the measure of the love of God for his people. How wide is the love of God? Wide enough to control all things. Paul says in, first, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance for, from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. There's not one stray molecule in the whole universe. And as we see in this story, God has thousands of angels surrounding every square inch of this planet. What if we actually believed that? What if we had the spiritual sight to actually believe that and see God at work all around us? How deep is the love of God? Deep enough to, deep enough to reach us wherever we are in order to save us. I love the words of Romans 5, 6 through 8. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So to the believer, I say, open your eyes of faith. Listen to the words of Psalm 34. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people, for those who fear him will have all that they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. What if God really did open our eyes this weekend? Based on what we see here in 2 Kings chapter 6, imagine what you might see. Do you have the faith to see that God is good, that he is fighting for you in whatever circumstances you find your life today, that nothing in this world will ever separate you from the love of God, not death, nor life, or angels, or rulers, or things present, or past, height, depth, Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God, which is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wouldn't it be great to say, if God is for me, who can be against me? It's interesting to me how the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians sets up a contrast between being filled with the Spirit and being drunk with alcohol. And here's what he says. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit in other words, there are two ways to deal with our problems. Alcohol can blur our perception of reality. It helps us to drown out our fears, our worries, our sorrows. It dulls our pain. But he says the Spirit of God does just the opposite. He doesn't blur our sense of reality. He expands it. He lets us see that the armies of God are fighting for us, and they are greater than anything in this world fighting against us. You say, but I can't see them. I can't feel the effects. Let me point out another little detail we may have overlooked in this story, but a Hebrew person reading this story probably would not have overlooked it. It's in verse 10. Where does this vision take place? It takes place at a city called Dothan or an area called Dothan. Any Jewish person would recognize Dothan as a place made famous by another man of God who was in deep trouble many years earlier. And that person was a man by the name of Joseph. Remember Joseph, his brothers threw him into a pit 
and then sold him into slavery. And it was at Dothan where that happened. Now, in that pit, God, uh, Joseph prayed that God would deliver him. And God answered his prayers, yes, but not in the way he expected. He was sold to a group of slave traders from Egypt. He was falsely accused by Potiphar, the Pharaoh's chief of staff, and thrown into prison. He was forgotten there by a butler who promised to help him. But God was working all this stuff out in Joseph's life to get him to a place where he could rescue not only himself, but his family and all of God's people. If God had answered Joseph's prayer from the pit that day, the way Joseph thought that he wanted an answer, all of Joseph's family would have perished physically and spiritually. So the angels were there for Joseph, fighting for him even though he didn't see them. And that's how it may be for us sometimes. We can be sure that God is fighting for us even when we can't track the footprints of the angels or the, hear the rumble of the chariots. I do know that one of the things God is always doing is perfecting our faith. He's always testing our resolve in his goodness. You see, God is not just interested in solving our problems, our immediate problems and situations. He's interested in increasing our faith, restoring our faith. And so often God allows struggles to come into our life as a part of that process. Martin Luther said, like a child trying to push against the hands of a parent, the parent gives only enough resistance to test the resolve of the child. So God resists us in prayer, he says, to see our resolve in his goodness. Spiritual sight gives us the ability to see a world filled with horses and chariots of God working things out according to God's will and plan. And what we need as Christ followers is not the ability to see the angels, but the insight into the great heart of God. We tend to see the setbacks in our life uh, uh, that, as things that are going to just be permanent. We tend to see broken relationships as destroying our life, failures as ruining our careers, and we tend to think of ourselves at times as worthless and nothing but failure and pain in our future, but it's all lies. The Bible says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the person who takes refuge in him. The battle for our life has already been won. We just need to hold on to God's hands and let it play out. Now, just real quickly, I want to talk about the blindness of an unbeliever. The non-believers in our story of Elisha uh, think that God and his people are their enemies. And all they have to do is capture and eliminate the prophet, and their problems will be over. It'll all be solved. So Elisha strikes them with this kind of spiritual blindness, which we can see is kind of a picture of spiritual, or with a physical blindness, is a picture of spiritual blindness, but he gives them this sort of deluded thinking. And they think they can see, but they really can't. And that's how it is for a person without Jesus Christ in their life, a non-believer. They think they can see clearly, but they can't. Elisha then confounds them. He tells them that they're seeking the wrong person, and he walks them right into Israel's capital, which puts them in completely an indefensible and vulnerable state. And this is exactly what God does. Paul says that he confounds the plans of the wise 
and he brings them to ruin. Remember the story in the Old Testament about the, town of, or the Tower of Babel? When people were trying to make one global society where we would all think and act alike, and they were rebelling against God, and God confounded their language so they couldn't understand each other. So Elisha does a similar thing. He confounds the army, and he leads them to a position of complete vulnerability. But he does something no one's expecting. He throws them a party. He commands a feast, and then he lets them go. And when they finally snap out of their blindness, you know, they expected judgment. They expected they would never come out of that alive. But instead, Elijah shows them grace. Now, don't miss the irony here. They thought the resolution to their problem would come through capturing and destroying God's prophet. Instead, they found blessing when they were captured by Elisha. And there are so many overtones of Jesus here. Uh, when Jesus came, everybody missed him. People were blinded. They, they were seeking the wrong guy. The Jews thought they needed a conquering warrior who would get rid of all their enemies, including the Romans. And the Greeks thought they were looking for a brilliant philosopher king. But when the real Messiah showed up and he served the poor and he washed dirty feet and he died as, in a, as a substitution for sin, they totally missed it. And like Elisha, Jesus took his enemies into the heart of the capital to the place of God's justice, but instead of giving out judgment, he gave them grace. Instead of calling down legions of angels on his accusers in that moment on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This was the foolishness of God confounding the wise. An ultimate victory is not to destroy the enemy, but to turn our enemies into friends. And that's what Elisha did with these soldiers. It's what Jesus has done with us. Many of us are under the same delusion that these soldiers were under. Their blindness is a picture of our blindness. We think that God sometimes is our adversary, that he, his rules are bad, they're restrictive, he doesn't care about us, he's abandoned us to problems and situations in our life, so we're always trying to prove ourselves in some way to him, but the tragedy is that all along we think we can see. That's the real tragedy. All along we think we can see. It all seems so clear, but we are blind. We're going to make the biggest mistake of our life all the while thinking that we can see clearly. And it reminds me of what Jesus said to the Pharisees after he healed the blind man in John chapter 9. He said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. And like these Syrian soldiers, we think we're going to find what we're looking for by achieving earthly success. Don't we? We want a job. We want a, a job, a, a new relationship, a certain salary level, um, a level of fame, but just like in our story, we will only find what we're looking for when we are captured by God. Because true joy is not found in a boyfriend, it's not found in a scholarship, it's not found in a uh, retirement package or a new house or even a new job, it's found in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Look what Jesus has done for us. He did more than simply throw us a feast and let us go. He took us into the heart of his capital but rather than taking vengeance on, his, on us, he gave his life for us. And on that cross, he could have called down legions of angels to deliver him, but he didn't do that. He suffered, willingly turning his back on all the help so that he could save us. And that should do two things for us. It should change our heart 
in our thinking about God, but it should also, also should show us that we can trust him. You see, all the previous prophets like Elisha had angels by their side. Jesus was the only one who did not. He was forsaken by them and forsaken by God so that he could save us. And there are a lot of other faith uh, traditions who have a hard time with the crucifixion because they believe that Jesus was a prophet, but on the cross, somehow Judas replaced Jesus. And they say, why would God ever allow his servant to be forsaken? The answer is so he could save us. It makes no sense to a lot of other faith traditions. It's foolishness. But it is through that foolishness that God saved the world. The believer looks at this foolishness and says, you know, amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, should die for me? These soldiers in 2 Kings, they had their life changed. After that, the Aramean raiders, the last verse says, stayed away from the land of Israel, and that was only the slightest touch of grace upon their life. But when Jesus died, the soldier at the cross was changed by seeing Jesus' grace toward him, and he says, surely this man is the Son of God. So let me ask you this morning in closing, what changes your heart? What is it that melts your heart of stone? You know, both believer and unbeliever alike, we need a fresh glimpse of God's love. And that one look will do more than a 10,000 practical points or doctrinal lessons. Some of, us, some of us thrive on Bible knowledge, but we don't need more Bible knowledge and insights. What we need is a fresh view of the love and the grace of God. Jesus didn't tell us to, uh, Jesus didn't die so that he could fill our heads with more religious information. He died so that we would know his great heart of love. The Apostle Paul knew that all the teaching and studying in the world didn't, wouldn't produce spiritual sight. You know, he knew that firsthand because on the road to Damascus, all the Bible knowledge in the world, he was a scholar, was, it didn't do him any good. He was blind to the truth about Jesus. And God literally struck him blind on the road to Damascus to help him see that, and God gives us that kind of knowledge as a gift. You know, Scripture says that Jesus was raised from the dead. He healed lepers. He gave sight to the blind. Jesus' ministry is, in Matthew's Gospel, um, it, Jesus describes it. He says, go back to John. Tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised to life. And good news is preached to the poor. If we're looking for God, we will find him if we can open our eyes and pray for that spiritual sight that will see God all around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the gift of your word and for the story this morning that reminds us that we are spiritually blind so much of the time. We don't see how you are working on our behalf. We don't see... Uh, the power and the glory of God and the angels of God surrounding us. Help us, O oh God, in the days ahead to not fear, but to trust in you. Increase our faith. Increase our trust in you and help us to know how much you love us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.